This is Chapter 10 of Mark Twain, His Life and Work, a biographical sketch by William M. Clemens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 10 Mark Twain at Home Read by John Greenman when, in 1868, Samuel L. Clemens visited the city of Hartford, Connecticut, to arrange for the publication of his first book, Innocents Abroad, he was captivated by the old town and its beautiful suburbs. Later, in 1871, when he determined upon leaving Buffalo and taking up his residence in an eastern city, it was not strange that he should select Hartford as the site for his permanent home. In a corner of the Nook Farm, on Farmington Avenue, about a mile and a quarter from the business center of the city, he built a large, unique house of brick and stone. The building was of the Queen Anne style of architecture, which, just at that time, was the most popular as well as the most aristocratic mode of residence in vogue. There were gables and arches and quaint windows, and in many of these boxes of flowers were placed. The house was built in the center of a park-like grove of old trees, and the hand of a Scotch landscape artist soon molded hedges, flower-beds, and a well-kept lawn. Today it stands a home of homes. A porte-cochere covered with vines extends from the entrance under which the carriages drive. The exterior of the house has the air of a luxurious old English home. From the day that Mark Twain and his young wife took up their abode in their Hartford home, money was expended with lavish hands, and the result has been a rich, charming, artistic, and homelike interior. One is ushered into an immense square hall, the floor of which is in marble tiles of peculiar pattern. A winding staircase, very wide and massive, of heavily carved English oak, extends above. Opposite the front door are double doors leading into the library. Near these doors, in the hall, stands upon a marble pedestal the bust of Mr. Clemens, executed by young Carl Gerhardt. There are also paintings on the carved oaken walls of the hall and a heavily carved table. To the right are double doors leading into the large drawing-room. All the doors and windows are draped at the top by handsome lambrequins. The doors and woodwork are of dark, polished wood, covered with stencil designs in metallic paint, so that at a short distance they look as if inlaid with mother-of-pearl. The drawing-room is furnished with light-colored satin furniture. Leading from this apartment is the dining-room, which is finished in heavy carved woods of the most elaborate workmanship. High carved dado, old tapestry portier, a massive buffet covered with cut glass and silverware. An odd idea is a window directly over the fireplace. It is of one solid piece of plate glass, surrounded by a frame of dark blue glass, and inside that, like the mat of a picture, opal glass as one looks out at the beautiful landscape he can hardly realize at first that it is nature's handiwork thus framed in instead of a painting actually hanging upon the wall the flue of the fireplace extends each side of this picturesque window connected with the dining-room is the library which is the general living-room it has large double doors leading into the front hall opposite the entrance 
it is a sunny cheerful room with a huge heavily carved fireplace which mr clemens brought from europe where it had once held place in an ancient castle it seems to have brought with it to this american home some of the dignity pomp and splendor of which it once formed an important part the room looks as if it belonged to a baronial castle but in winter it is less somber and a blazing fire of logs burns behind the brass fender bringing into greater prominence the motto cut in brass above the fire the ornament of a house is the friends that frequent it on either side are low bookshelves built against the wall they form a part of the massive chimney-piece and look like wings of a great bat the floor is covered with rugs and luxurious seats are fitted into the windows a large carved table stands in the center covered with magazines and papers the whole house has rather the appearance of an old castle with the carvings grotesque and ponderous instead of the old mahogany of colonial days a wide oaken staircase leads to the apartments above the most conspicuous of which is a large room fitted up most comfortably with cozy nooks filled in with cushioned seats beyond is a room in which a large rocking-horse and scattered toys make one acquainted with the reason mr clemens ceased writing in this attractive apartment and moved still further upstairs to a corner of the billiard-room each suite of apartments has its separate bathroom one guest-chamber is furnished in pink silk even the bedstead is of pink silk tufted all over with tiny satin buttons the study or workroom of the humorist is the billiard-room upon the upper floor the windows of which look out upon the broad acres of beautiful landscape in the distance is heard the ripple of park river in the corner of the room is his writing-table covered usually with books manuscripts letters and other literary litter and in the middle of the room stands the billiard-table mr clemens is an expert billiard-player and when he tires of writing at his little desk in the corner he rises and makes some scientific strokes with the cue a resident of hartford says that he called upon mark once in the billiard-room when the fire in the grate threw some sparks out upon the floor these caught some loose paper and the room for a moment promised to break out in flames twain was playing billiards at the time says the man and he did not stop his game he immediately rung for the servants and lazily told them that they had better extinguish the fire and with that he leaned over the table and made a stroke with his billiard cue which would have done honor to the world's champion twain never gets excited the study is a long room with sloping sides formed by the roof there are three balconies adjacent two large ones on either side and one at the end one may step out into these through regular doors his mode of work in this study is systematic he makes it an invariable rule to perform a certain amount of literary work every day and his working hours are made continuous by his not taking any midday meal he is merciless toward his own productions and has often destroyed an entire day's labor as soon as it was written he found by experience that the final result was more satisfactory by taking this course than by trying to remodel what he considered a faulty manuscript in this way he has destroyed hundreds of pages of manuscript 
and from one of his larger books he culled out no less than five hundred pages since his advent in the city of hartford mark twain has won for himself the name of prince of entertainers seated in his richly furnished library to whose beauty and artistic completeness half the lands of europe have contributed he will tell an anecdote or discuss a literary or social question with a calm directness and earnestness revealing to you an entire new side of his character that has nothing in common with that which he is wont to display to the public who throng to his lectures even his drollest stories he relates with this same earnest impressiveness and with a face as serious as a sexton's his brilliancy has a certain delightful quality which is almost too evanescent to be imprisoned in any one phrase you have no oppressive consciousness that you are expected to laugh you rather feel as if the talker had unexpectedly taken you into his confidence and you feel your heart going out toward him in return he is a reader of the finest discriminating faculty high dramatic power and remarkable sympathetic interpretation and his reading of browning whom he greatly admires is a rare entertainment he is a leading member of the monday evening club of hartford the authors club the century club the actors club of new york and other social and literary organizations during the summer months mr clemens and his family sojourn at quarry farm near elmira new york at the home of mr t w crane whose wife is a sister of mrs clemens here among the historic hills of the chemung valley the humorist works with the same systematic rule as in the study of his hartford house a friend who visited mr clemens in his summer retreat writes as follows a summer house has been built for mr clemens within the crane grounds on a high peak which stands six hundred feet above the valley that lies spread out before it the house is built almost entirely of glass and is modeled exactly on the plan of a mississippi steamboat's pilot house here shut off from all outside communication mr clemens does the hard work of the year or rather the confining and engrossing work of writing which demands continuous application day after day the lofty workroom is some distance from the house he goes to it every morning about half-past eight and stays there until called to dinner by the blowing of a horn about five o'clock he takes no lunch or noon meal of any sort and works without eating while the rules are imperative not to disturb him during this working period his only recreation is his cigar another correspondent wrote as follows to keep away the large number of visitors and sightseers who come to view the sanctum twain posted upon his door the following notice step softly keep away do not disturb the remains in spite of this characteristic warning we open the door and enter the floor is bare there is a table in the center of the room covered with books newspapers manuscripts and all the paraphernalia of authorship over the fireplace is a shelf on which rests a few books and a couple of boxes of choice cigars an intimate acquaintance writing of mr clemens and the tobacco habit says 
he is an inveterate smoker and smokes constantly while it is work and indeed all the time from half past eight in the morning to half past ten at night stopping only when at his meals a cigar lasts him about forty minutes now that he has reduced to an exact science the act of reducing the weed to ashes so he smokes from fifteen to twenty cigars every day some time ago he was persuaded to stop the practice and actually went a year and more without tobacco but he found himself unable to carry along important work which he undertook and it was not until he resumed smoking that he could do it since then his faith in his cigar has not wavered like other american smokers mr clemens is unceasing in his search for the really satisfactory cigar at a really satisfactory price and first and last has gathered a good deal of experience in the pursuit it is related that having entertained a party of gentlemen one winter evening in hartford he gave to each just before they left the house one of a new sort of cigar that he was trying to believe was the object of his search he made each guest light it before starting the next morning he found all that he had given away lying on the snow beside the pathway across his lawn each smoker had been polite enough to smoke until he got out of the house but every one on gaining his liberty had yielded to the instinct of self-preservation and tossed the cigar away forgetting that it would be found there by daylight the testimony of the next morning was overwhelming and the verdict against the new brand was accepted some years ago in making a phrenological examination of mark twain professor beale of cincinnati made report as follows wit humor are very familiar words and yet from the difficulty in defining them or from not distinguishing the particular mental mechanism upon which they depend the relative merits of many authors are often but vaguely understood wit is primarily an intellectual perception of incongruity or unexpected relations but the idea that anything thus apprehended is ludicrous is suggested by the effective faculty of mirthfulness in the same manner that the understanding may perceive a dangerous object and thus arouse the emotion of fear the relation between the intellectual faculties and the feelings is reciprocal so that the sentiment of the ludicrous when strong may prompt the intellect to create imaginary senses or associated ideas adapted to gratify it or become active as the result of real perceptions talent for wit then depends upon certain intellectual activities combined with the sentiment of mirth but humor introduces another element namely secretiveness this propensity not only creates the desire to conceal one's own thoughts but gives almost equal pleasure in penetrating the disguises of others it enables a joker to keep a straight face while telling a story and the secretiveness of the listener is gratified by detecting the absurdity in the narrative beneath 
the assumed gravity of the speaker that is to the amusing incongruity of the events in the story is added the further incongruity between the character of the story and the serious countenance of the narrator the english and italians are more humorous than witty the reverse of which is true of the french mark twain is excellent in wit but super excellent in humor secretiveness is very marked in the diameter of his head just above the ears and is indicated also by the width of his nostrils the nearly closed eyes compressed lips slow guarded manner of speech etc his nose is of the apprehensive type in its great length and somewhat hooked point but it is not thick enough above the nostrils to indicate taste for commerce this apprehensive or cautious nasal organ so prominent in dante calvin and other men celebrated for earnestness and gravity uh, might seem an anomaly in this case but for the explanation that cautiousness and secretiveness are essential ingredients in genuine humor on this principle we can account for the temperament of our great humorist which is not the laughing fat rotund vital but rather the spare angular mental or mental motive which is favorable to hard sense logic general intelligence and insight into human nature his intellect is well balanced having a strong foundation of perceptive faculties which gather details with the fidelity of a camera he has also a large upper forehead giving philosophical power ability to generalize reason plan and see a long way ahead the middle centers or memory of events criticism and comparison are also well developed his eyes are rather deeply set and his language is subordinate to his thought the hollow temples indicate but little music and mirthfulness at the upper corners of the forehead is by no means remarkable ideality or love of beauty is only fair the head measures twenty two and a half inches which is half an inch less than the average intellectual giant but the fiber of the whole man is fine close and strong and the cerebral combination is of a very available sort he has very ardent affections strong love of approbation sense of justice firmness kindness and ability to read character with small self-esteem love of gain or inclination to the supernatural knowledge of the world and interest in humanity are his leading traits and altogether he is a phenomenal man of whom americans may well be proud being extremely domestic in his tastes mark twain is fond of his home life and of his beautiful children his eldest daughter susie was born in eighteen seventy two clara langhorne was born in eighteen seventy four and jean in 1880 another child a son died in infancy mrs clemens is described as gentle quiet and motherly ten years younger than her husband 
Mr. Clemens is reported to have said that when his mother died there would be no one left in the family to appreciate his jokes. It is said Mrs. Clemens is particularly slow in these matters. She dresses very plainly, wearing her dark hair smoothly brushed from the parting in the center, with no crimps or attempt at dressing. She appears still more sedate by usually wearing eyeglasses. She is, however, noted for her goodness and for being a fond mother. For many years the near neighbors of the family have been the families of Mr. Charles Dudley Warner, Mr. George Warner, Reverend Mr. Twitchell, and Mrs. Harriet Beecher Stowe. It is said that once, when Mr. Clemens, at the solicitation of his wife, called on Mrs. Stowe, he was so absent-minded as to put on neither collar nor necktie. On Mrs. Clemens remonstrating on his return, he said he would make it all right, and accordingly sent a collar and tie of his over to Mrs. Stowe in a box. Miss Susie has always been Mark's favorite child. She inherits much of her father's brightness. She kept a diary at one time, in which she noted the occurrences in the family, and, among other things, the sayings of her parents. On one page she wrote that father sometimes used stronger words when mother wasn't by, and he thought we didn't hear. Mrs. Clemens found the diary and showed it to her husband, probably thinking the particular page worth his notice. After this, Clemens did and said several things that were intended to attract the child's attention, and found them duly noted afterward. But one day the following entry occurred. I don't think I'll put down anything more about father, for I think he does things to have me notice him, and I believe he reads this diary. Of the Clemens children, a correspondent of a Chicago newspaper tells of their adventures with their father while on a visit to that city, as follows. We came in last night, said Mark, pulling at the left side of his mustache. Mrs. Clemens is not very well, neither am I. I have been amusing the children. I have taken them to a panorama. I understand there are three others near here. I will take them there, too. I want to satiate them with battles. It may amuse them. Three little girls, composed of three red gowns, three red parasols, and six blue stockings, stood on the steps and laughed. Run up and tell Mamma what a jolly time you've had, and I'll think of something else to amuse you. When the three little girls had disappeared, Mr. Clemens sighed. Did you ever try to amuse three little girls at the same time? He asked after a pause. It requires genius. I wonder whether they would like to bathe in the lake. He continued with sudden animation, hardly pausing five minutes between each word. It might amuse them. Are you on your vacation trip, Mr. Clemens? No, I have just returned from a visit to my mother in Keokuk, Iowa. 
we came from buffalo to duluth by a lake steamer and then from st paul down the river to keokuk neither in this country nor in any other have i seen such interesting scenery as that along the upper mississippi one finds all that the hudson affords bluffs wooded highlands and a great deal in addition between st paul and the mouth of the illinois river there are over four hundred islands strung out in every possible shape a river without islands is like a woman without hair she may be good and pure but one doesn't fall in love with her very often did you ever fall in love with a bald-headed woman the reporter admitted that he had drawn the line there i never did either continued mr clemens meditatively at least i think i never did there is no place for loafing more satisfactory than the pilot-house of a mississippi steamboat it amuses the children to see the pilot monkey with the wheel traveling by boat is the best way to travel unless one can stay at home on a lake or river boat one is as thoroughly cut off from letters and papers and the tax collector as though he were amid sea moreover one doesn't have the discomforts of seafaring it is very unpleasant to look at seasick people at least so my friends said the last time i crossed it might amuse the children though suggested the reporter i hadn't thought of that replied mr clemens but perhaps it might the lake seems rather rough today i wonder whether one could get a boat a little boat that would bob considerably yes it might amuse the children but at such a sacrifice you are not a parent replied the humorist it is strange continued mr clemens in a momentary forgetfulness of the children how little has been written about the upper mississippi the river below st louis has been described time and again and it is the least interesting part one can sit in the pilot-house for a few hours and watch the low shores the ungainly trees and the democratic buzzards and then one might as well go to bed one has seen everything there is to see along the upper mississippi every hour brings something new there are crowds of odd islands bluffs prairies hills woods and 
villages, everything one could desire to amuse the children. A few people ever think of going there, however. Dickens, Corbett, Mother Trollope, and the other discriminating English people who wrote up the country before 1842 had hardly any idea that such a stretch of river scenery existed. Their successors have followed in their footsteps, and as we form our opinions of our country from what other people say of us, of course we ignore the finest part of the Mississippi. At this moment the three little girls in the three red gowns and six blue stockings appeared, and Mr. Clemens assumed the shape of an amusement bureau. An instance of his home life is the following anecdote. Having been asked to contribute to a newspaper issued at the fair in aid of the abused children in Boston, he wrote, Why should I want a society for the prevention of cruelty to children to prosper when I have a baby downstairs that kept me awake several hours last night with no pretext for it but to make trouble this occurs every night and it embitters me because i see how needless it was to put in the other burglar alarm a costly and complicated contrivance which cannot be depended upon because it's always getting out of order whereas although the baby is always getting out of order too it can nevertheless be depended upon yes i am bitter against your society for i think the idea of it is all wrong but if you will start a society for the prevention of cruelty to fathers i will write you a whole book at a hartford dinner party one day the subject of eternal life and future punishment came up for a lengthy discussion in which mark twain who was present took part a lady near him turned suddenly toward him and exclaimed why do you not say anything i want your opinion mr clemens replied gravely madam you must excuse me i am silent of necessity i have friends in both places end of chapter ten read by john greenman